Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. We're continuing our series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. Last week, we asked what it meant to be found in Jesus. And we discovered two things. To be found in Jesus means to be right with God. And to be found in Jesus also means we have new life in God. This morning, Paul wants to elaborate on the implications of this amazing truth. And so let's read the passage together. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And then we'll pray and we'll dig in together. This is God's word. Not that I have already obtained this. And when he says this, he's referring to verse 11, just so you know, where he's talking about attaining the resurrection from the dead, which is really a catch-all phrase for all of God's salvation. So, verse 11, not that I've already obtained all that God has for me in terms of salvation, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true or walk in uh, what you have already attained. And so this is God's word. Let's just pray for a moment before we start. Lord... With the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts as we hear your word proclaimed, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And enlarge our hearts and open the eyes of our hearts so that we wouldn't just hear information, but we would see you and see your glory, Jesus. And would that change us from one degree to the next? That's our prayer. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so Josie and my boys, Josie's my wife, uh, we're in Cincinnati most of the weekend. And whenever I have some unexpected time alone like that, I always do one thing. Do you know what it is? If you know me well, you would know. I head straight on over to Half Price Books. That's just what I do. Unhurried time at Half Price Books. You know this about me. Well, I have a mental list of books in my mind that I could easily buy on Amazon. I could even buy these books used on Amazon right now. But I want to discover them at Half Price Books. That is more fun. Uh, And so it shouldn't surprise you that I always make time to look at the Christianity section. That shouldn't surprise you at all. I probably never go in there without checking out that section. And let me orient you now to that section if you've never been before. There's really two sections. Okay? You walk in and straight away you see what we'll call the theology shelves. And then if you go to the other section, you'll see what's called the Christian living shelves. The theology shelves, they're more theoretical. The Christian living shelves are more practical. The theology shelves are sort of hit or miss. The Christian living shelves are mostly, if not all, miss. Okay? Now listen. I'm not against Christian living books. I'm all for buying and reading practical Christian living books. But I want to make the case to you all this morning as your pastor to not read or buy another Christian living book until you have wrestled with the verses that we just heard read aloud. Because as the Cuban American scholar Moises Silva calls it, this section that we just heard aloud is Paul's practical 
theology. If Paul's letter to the Philippians were in half-price books, verses 9 through 11, which was last week, would be in the theology shelf. And then verses 12 through 16, which is this morning, would be in the Christian living shelf. It's personal. It's practical. It answers the questions that maybe all of you are asking. Okay, I'm right with God. Okay, I have new life with God. Okay, I'm united to Jesus. So what? Pastor Brian Chapel, he likes to talk about how his preaching instructor, who was a former military man, used to stand at the back of the chapel with his hands uh, crossed, asking after, done, after he was finished with his sermon, so what? Okay, so what? And maybe some of you resonate with that question. Like, I love theory. You know this about me? I love macro ideas. I'm very comfortable as an English major. I'm very comfortable with metaphor. Just tell me a metaphor and I'm happy. But some of you, I know, I'm not, I know that I'm not, uh, not everybody is like me. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you're just like, you know what? I struggle there. I have a friend. I was talking to him on Monday morning. And he reminded me that everybody is not all like me in this way. And maybe that's you this morning. You get that you're made right with God. You just want a practical lesson on what that means in your daily life. You're asking, so what? Well, Paul gratefully lands the plane for us this morning. We can summarize his practical teaching in the verses we just heard with two phrases. And we're going to explore both in detail. The first phrase is this, Christian living is effort, not earning. And the second is this, Christian living is progress, not perfection. Christian living is effort, not earning. Christian living is progress, not perfection. Let's take a look at each in turn. So the late... Philosopher Dallas Willard once wrote, Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And that is such a helpful way of looking at it, especially as we read verses 12 through 16, because on the one hand, Paul tells us that daily life as a Christian is 100% effort. And yet on the other hand, everything in this passage is about grace. There is no earning in the Christian life. And so let's take a look at each of these. First of all, Paul says four times about daily Christian living, essentially that Christian living is 100% effort. Christian living is, if we take a look at verse 12, it is pressing on. I press on, Paul says, to make it my own. Christian living is making it my own. Making it my own. I press on to what? To make it my own. Christian living is straining forward. Verse 13. I don't consider I've made it on my own. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining. The word straining is, is 100% effort. Straining forward. And then, in, and then later on he, he says that Christian life could be characterized as pressing forward. Towards a finish line or a goal. Verse 14. I press on. Toward the goal 
for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So in other words, if you were to ask Paul, the Apostle Paul, if you were to say, Paul, what does it feel like to live the Christian life? He would say probably something like this. It feels like death. It's like racing. No offense to the runners out there. It's like racing hard. Pouring out everything in a race. Which feels like death. It's not jogging where you're holding back. It's racing. Uh, my friend Ramin, who was an all-American runner in college, uh, he likes to say that there are two people. There's runners and there's joggers. And a lot of joggers think they're runners. <laughs> uh, he used to poke fun at me because I wanted to put sunglasses on when I ran with him. He'd be like, no, if you were running, you wouldn't wear sunglasses. <laughs> you wouldn't have headphones if you were running. Joggers wear headphones. <laughs> uh, Because running is when you pour out all that you have. At the end of the race, you should be puking or almost puking. Sorry. It's 100% effort. But don't get the wrong idea from Paul, because Paul does not think that he is earning his salvation by putting in this kind of effort. And we too often confuse that. We say, well, if there's effort in the scriptures, therefore it must mean that we're earning somehow God's favor. But that's not at all what Paul says. There's grace all over this passage. In verse 12, it says that, It says, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Jesus has made me his own fully, completely. That's grace. In verse 14, we see that the call, the call, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus precedes the race itself. He presses on towards the finish line, but the call itself, the call toward the prize was a gracious call given to Paul before he even started running the thing. It's grace, completely, 100% grace. And all of this effort, if you're not convinced, in verse 14 is summarized as being in Christ, which is a status that you cannot change. If you are in Christ, God sees you in Christ. God loves you and forgives you and cherishes you as if you were looking at his own son, Jesus. And so you cannot say that the effort that Paul describes is earning in any way. So if you were to ask Paul what it feels like to live out the Christian life, he would surely say it feels like death. But then he would quickly say it also feels like freedom. It also feels like freedom. Because verse 12 shows us that he wants to make it his own. I press on to make it my own. He wants to press on to make his salvation his own. Because Jesus has made him his own. See, it's grace that makes him run harder. If he were earning his salvation, he would not press on like he does. But it's God's grace that that compels us to run even harder. John Calvin, he has this to say, and I think it's helpful. He says that the grace of God, when given to sinners, changes our hearts, our attitude towards God, because before we obeyed to avoid punishment. Because you know what it's like to obey your parents to avoid punishment? You know what that feels like? He was saying, basically, that's how all of us are towards God before grace. But then when grace comes and we accept Christ and we experience his his lavish grace and we're united to Jesus, when all of that happens, when we realize that God delights in us, then we want to obey him. We don't have to obey him. We want to obey him. Do you see the difference? 
And we grieve sin, not because we want to avoid punishment, but we grieve sin because it grieves God. Calvin's provocative. He actually says, a Christian who gets grace would obey God even if there were no hell. Why? Because Jesus made me his own. That's why. In his way is life. His way is freedom. Over a hundred college athletes uh, were asked what their worst memory was playing youth sports. Some of you were collegiate athletes, and maybe I'll ask you the question. You can answer in your own mind and heart and see if you resonate with what most of these respondents said. Most of these respondents, these were college athletes, said the thing that they hated most about youth sports was the ride home with mom and dad. Journalist Steve Henson writes, quote, those same college athletes were asked what their parents said made them, uh, what, what their parents said that made them feel great. Listen to this, that amplified their joy during and after the sporting event. They asked these college athletes, what did your parents say to you that amplified your joy as you were competing in this event? And you know what they said? I love to watch you play. When parents said, I love to watch you play, it amplified their joy and made them work harder at their sport. What would happen if each week of grueling obedience, of sacrifice that we go through in our whole week, if we gathered on Sunday to hear God say, not, well, here's what I saw you do wrong at the free throw line. Here's what I saw you do wrong. Man, you were slacking there, weren't you? Man, you need to turn it up over there. But instead, God's saying, I loved to watch you play. God as your heavenly Father, looking down at you and saying, I love to watch you play. I'm willing to wager, according to Scripture, that we would not slack off, would we? But instead, we would pour out our whole lives. We would, as some, as some people put it, we would leave everything on the field. In fact, this journalist says, who is it in sporting events that usually says, I love to watch you play? The grandparents. The grandparents go to the sporting event and they say, I love to watch you play. The parents are always criticizing. And so he's suggesting if you have a child in sports, pretend you're a grandparent. (laughs) Well, listen, we have a God who sent Jesus so that we could be united to Jesus and to be in God's family. And when God sees you grueling it out, He says, I love watching you play. So that's number one. Christian living is effort, not earning. Number two, Christian living is progress, not perfection. Paul says two things about growth. One, you should experience progress. And two, you should not expect perfection. 
First, Paul teaches progress, what the author Francis Schaeffer would call substantial healing, not complete healing. Substantial healing. And so take a look. Paul presses on in our text. Paul strains forward in our text. Paul has a goal. He is actually moving toward in this text. Paul has a prize that he presses toward. And all of this implies forward progress. So we should experience progress. And yet on the other hand, we should not expect perfection. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect in verse 12. And he says in verse 13, I do not consider that I myself have made it my own, referring to perfection. And so Paul, especially in verses 9 through 11, speaks very confidently about being made perfect in the sight of God. That's what justification is. Remember, we talked about this. When God declares us right in his presence, not because of our righteousness, but because of an alien or an outside righteousness, namely Jesus, credited to us in our account. And so we have in God's sight perfection. We are looked at by God because we're in Christ as perfect. So Paul has so much to say about being seen as perfect in Christ, but he's also so very open and vulnerable about his imperfections. Could they be connected? Could it be that the verdict of God, you are in Christ, you are righteous in my sight, enables him to be brutally honest about his imperfections and to stop hiding? Could it be that we need God to see all of us through and through and yet still love us through and through, which can only happen if we're in Christ through and through, which is true if your faith is in Jesus. Could it be that that has to be in place for us to be honest about our imperfections, as Paul is in this text? Not that I've already obtained it. It's amazing that he says, not that I've already obtained it, because in his midst, in the midst of the Philippian church, there were influencers who were saying, it is possible to be perfect. And so Paul, instead of being like, well, let me show you my peacock feathers, instead folds them up. It says, I'm imperfect. Isn't that amazing? Paul the Apostle. So we should experience progress, for sure, Paul says that. But we should not expect perfection. I'm, cur- I'm currently, um, I have another hobby. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm currently trying to skip rope like a boxer. That's just what I'm trying to do right now. Um, So I've been watching YouTube videos of Mayweather and Pacquiao and Tyson and Ali uh, skipping rope. It's amazing. You should try it. What's that? Watch a video skipping. Yes, watching videos of amazing boxers (laughs) skipping rope. You're right, Alan. That's exactly what I said. I even ordered a video of a boxing instructor on how to skip rope like a boxer. Okay, so I'm there. That's where I'm at right now. Let me just say, there's nothing more humbling than skipping rope. Especially in front of others at a gym. Nothing more humbling than that. Um, and I've noticed that when I expect perfection, when I expect an ollie sort of skipping, I just fail miserably. I get frustrated. But when I expect progress, I actually grow. 
Well, that is what Paul, in a way, is talking about in verses 15 and 16, the last few verses of our section. He is saying, hold true or walk, especially verse 16, in light of what you have attained. He says in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. That is great pastoral advice. Said another way, it's like this. As you make effort, you will grow because of God's grace. And then as you grow, hold true or walk in light of that growth. He does not say become perfect, become perfect, become perfect, become perfect. Instead, he says you are declared perfect in Jesus. Now become who you are in Christ. Expect progress, not perfection. Emily Freeman Uh, She challenges me when she talks about the burden of perfectionism, especially in Christian circles. She writes this. She says, I constantly worried that my imperfect status would be discovered. Is that you? I often experienced guilt, but did not know why. I felt the heavy weight of impossible expectations and had the insatiable desire to explain every mistake. Is that you? You feel the insatiable desire to justify every mistake that you've made. Well, listen, there's freedom to simply embrace the Bible's teaching on Christian living. Progress, not perfection. Perfection will come, but it will come when you see Jesus face to face. Whether that means you die and you see him, or whether that means he comes and you see him. So we're promised perfection. But in our Christian life, day in and day out, we don't expect it. We expect progress. Paul says one degree to the next degree. So, practical Christian living for you is guided by two principles. What are they? Effort not earning, progress not perfection. Which means there are two huge daily errors to avoid. I say daily because even if you've got this locked into your head, you will, in practice, fall in to one or two or both of these errors. And so, one on the, other, on the one hand is earnism. We'll call it earnism or moralism. You're earning God's favor. Or you're obeying to earn something from God. And then on the other hand, there's the error of perfectionism. Uh, so 56 million people, at least on YouTube, have watched the mountain biker Danny McCaskill riding on a narrow, jagged ridge of the black Kulin Mountains in the Isle of Skye. Have you seen this? A few of you have? Well, it's amazing. I encourage you all to watch Ollie skip rope and to watch Danny McCaskill ride on this ridge in the Isle of Skye. The ridge was wide enough for his wheels. Just barely. Boom. But on either side is sure death. And so look at it this way. You're riding on a ridge. The Christian life is riding on a ridge. And on one side is moralism. On the other side is perfectionism. And we are called to stay on a thin ridge. So what does riding this ridge look like? Uh, Well, I think it'd be helpful to maybe take prayer, Bible reading, and Christian community 
as just some examples of what it would look like to fall off the ridge in these three practices of prayer, Bible reading, and Christian community. How can we fall off the ridge in our prayer life? That's the first question. How can you fall off the ridge in your prayer life? Well, earnism or moralism is when you pray to God to earn his love or to earn a gift from him, something you desire like health or wealth or wisdom. And we know this can't be right, and we know this is falling off the ridge because the Bible says that Jesus makes us friends with God, and that's not how you talk to a friend. So then on the other side of the ridge would be perfectionism, which makes us all or nothing about our prayer life. We're either this prayer warrior. You know, that's what we call people who pray a lot, prayer warriors. We're either this prayer warrior, this sort of St. Teresa of Avila, like this amazing prayer, or we're just prayerless. That's what perfectionism does. We get frustrated and we give up. But what if we instead pursued prayer in Christ? That's the bridge. Pursuing prayer in Christ. Well, we would not be crushed at failure, would we? But neither would we be satisfied with prayerlessness. Did you hear that? We would not be crushed at failure in our prayer life. But neither would we be satisfied with prayerlessness. Why? Because in Christ, praying is a joy. We would pursue prayer like a joyful athlete. I want you to carry this metaphor out of this space. When you understand that you are united to Christ, when you understand that when God sees you grueling it out on the playing field and he says, I love watching you play. When you understand that, you become a joyful athlete. Praying as a joyful athlete means you're not crushed at failure, but neither are you satisfied with prayerlessness. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about reading the Bible. And I think you can come to your own conclusions here. I'll just help you as you think about what it would look like in your own life. Moralism, this side of the ridge, in our Bible reading is when we read God's word to earn his favor. And many people take up Bible reading plans. Who's in Exodus? Amen. Anybody at the beginning of the year? Who's in Exodus with me? Yeah. So I'm in Exodus. I'm about to hit up uh, Leviticus. And that's where everybody stops. So, uh, <laughs> But here's the thing. Many people take up Bible reading plans to do just that. But meanwhile, we're not delighting in the word as David describes the word as honey. How can we experience God's word as honey when we're simply trying to earn God's favor through reading his word? So that's one side of the precipitous fall. But on the other hand, we can read God's word with a perfectionistic attitude, which is also the best way to stop reading the Bible. So what's the ridge of union with Christ? Well, we wouldn't be crushed at failure and we wouldn't be satisfied with not reading his word. We would approach the word like a joyful athlete. And let's talk about community, the final, to wrap things up. How might we fall off the ridge in our approach to church life or community life? Well, moralism, we would approach community as a way to earn God's favor, but this too will surely end in disaster, wouldn't it? And maybe some of you have tasted this. When someone hurts your feelings or when there's uh, expectations that aren't being met, or perhaps we become ugly in pride because we, we compare ourselves to every other faith community or non-faith community. 
When we fall off the ridge into moralism, we go to church because it's how God loves us. When we start doing that, we will become the ugliest church community in Columbus, Ohio. But there's another error, and it's falling into the perfectionistic side. We hide our imperfections from everyone. Again, Emily Freeman, she says, I taught people around me that I had no needs, and then I was secretly angry with them for believing me. That's what a perfectionistic community looks like. We tell people we have no needs, and then we burn with resentment when they believe us. Let me say that again. We tell people we have no needs, and then we hate them for believing us. That's a perfectionistic community, and it is ugly. And it is very much not in line with what Paul would move us towards. Imagine what it would look like if you pursued fellowship in Christ. Well, again, I think you would experience the church as a beautiful expression of Christ's welcome to sinners and perfect, broken people. And then I think you would extend that same welcome to others who are in the same place. And so Christian living is not earning, but it is effort. Christian living is not perfection, but it is progress. What if these were the two railings on the ridge as we walked as a church? Effort not earning, progress not perfection. Imagine what that would look like. We would be a room full of joyful athletes. That's what we'd be doing. And God the Father would look over us and say, I love you. And I love you.